from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Election Day is finally here, and while most of the attention is on Trump versus Biden, Democrats and Republicans are also locked in an intense battle for control of Congress. Led by Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrats took the House in 2018 and are expected to retain control of that chamber. And although the GOP controls the Senate, it is struggling to keep its slim majority. We'll discuss some of the key races in California and across the country and what to look for as returns start coming in. That's next, after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In this hour of forum, the battle for Congress. Voters across the nation are casting balance for all 435 House seats and in Senate races, 35 of those. We're going to look at some of those key races, the biggest issues and what's at stake for both parties. Joining us first to talk about the House of Representatives is Washington Post reporter Amber Phillips. And welcome, Amber. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And uh, I'm sure you remember, as I do, that less than a year ago when Republicans were saying the impeachment would cost the Democrats their majority in the House. Matt Gates of Florida saying the American people will remember in November uh, after Donald Trump was acquitted. Uh, and Donald Trump, in fact, after the last presidential debate said, we're going to take the House. It's not looking like that. I, I don't like to predict any horse races here, but largely because of health care and the pandemic uh, and the blue wave that happened in the midterm, the Democrats are looking in pretty good shape for the House. Yeah, that's exactly right. I just came off this call, uh, off a call to this call with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats campaign arm with reporters. And Pelosi was saying, you know, I, I don't want to put any numbers on it, but it's in where we could pick up anywhere from five on the low end to 10, 15, 20 seats. Um, they feel very confident. And when asked why, uh, Speaker Pelosi said, healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. They just talked about it from day one. They feel like the Supreme Court battle that just happened in the other chamber in the Senate really helps them uh, elevate that message. And then of course, President Trump not having a plan uh, and coronavirus weaves into that as well. It's the exact same playbook, only with the stakes heightened uh, that they used successfully in 2018. And remember also, uh, I want listeners to remember that the House lowered drug prices by allowing Medicare to negotiate with drug companies. McConnell blocked that in the Senate, calling it socialist price controls. And those kinds of things are weighing heavy with many people throughout the nation. Yeah, that's right. You know, especially, of course, at a time when people are hearing that the Supreme Court could knock down the Affordable Care Act, which millions of people rely on, um, and hundreds of millions for protections of pre-existing conditions. And then drug prices, you're right to touch on, was a huge issue in advertising in these competitive house races. I looked at you know, some of the advertising that I feel like sums up this 2020 congressional campaign. And on the Democratic side, it was so-and-so Republican is, you know, voted with the drug companies not to lower your drug prices and then took money from, you know, a conglomerate of drug companies. They were really trying to weave in this narrative of corruption when they talk about why Republicans are resistant to health care. Republicans, of course, counter exactly what you said. You know, they don't, they don't think you need to have price controls on this stuff. But Democrats feel like the drug costs 
specifically, which is an issue that predates the pandemic, uh, is a major winning one for them. And so they hammered it. Talking to The Washington Post, Amber Phillips, about the racists in the House of Representatives. And Amber, you mentioned uh, Speaker Pelosi. She's kind of really centralized her power in an unprecedented way. And she is really the chief antagonist right now for the president. Over a year, they haven't even spoken. And, uh, well, she's uh, also, if uh, we ought to mention, Vice President Biden is elected. She will no longer be the leader of the party. Biden will take over that role. But there's also the fact that she's moved in an unprecedented way all of these 18 uh, appointments, first-term legislators to subcommittee chairs, and she's really built a campaign organization from the ground up. The Democrats are really poised to gain some seats here. Uh, although, let's talk about some of the races that may be up for grabs here, and I'd just like to get initially your take on what people should particularly be watching tonight in terms of bellwether states or states that really may be revelatory to us about bigger meanings politically. Yeah, well, I think the first task for Democrats tonight or in the coming days is can they protect there's the 2018 wins that you were just talking about? And there were some really, really strong wins. Um, Representative Shatil Torres Small in New Mexico in a very conservative border district, Kendra Horn in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City. Uh, Anthony Brindisi in New York's 22nd district, Joe Cunningham in South Carolina, which tends to be rural and conservative. All these uh, lawmakers just totally surprised everybody by winning in 2018. And if they can hang on, uh, and there are signs that they can, I'm hearing particularly that Joe Cunningham in South Carolina, you know, isn't even in like the top 10 radar of most likely to lose that would be remarkable for Democrats because it would suggest that they were able to not only win in these districts that voted for Trump in 2018, but hang on to them two years later. Um, and they would do it if they did win by raising a ton of money, just jaw dropping money for congressional races, which suggests that they're smart campaigners and that there is grassroots energy for them. Yeah, but the Republicans are putting in huge amounts against these first-time Democratic lawmakers. They think they can unseat a number of them. Uh, you mentioned Kendra Horn, for example, of Oklahoma, but also someone like uh, Ben McAdams in Utah. They feel uh, that they've got a chance there, and, and some of them feel they've got a pretty good chance because of all the money they've raised. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, you know, there are some races where House Republicans have ha have outraced House Democrats. But I think the story of 2020 so far has been Democrats in congressional and Senate races just running away with the money. Um, and, and that's e it's easier if the candidate for the parties, it's easier if the candidate raises more money than having these super PACs have to come in and help, uh, which is what's happening in, in some races to bolster these House Republican candidates. Because you just get cheaper ad buys if you're a candidate versus a super PAC. It's just the way the rules are set up. So um, it helps have a candidate raise a lot of money. And then I would say that Republicans, it would be a huge gut punch for them if they could not take back some of these seats that they feel are rightfully theirs. Um, you know, that is their number one goal right now. Well, there's more minorities and women running as Republicans than ever before. There were about 64, in fact, uh, GOP black candidates, uh, about half of them have made it to the general election. But this is kind of, um, I suppose, maybe at least in their minds, uh, something that's changed for the better, or is it? <laughs> I mean, is it something it's that's going to help them, I think, is really what I'm asking. There's, they certainly hope so. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned Ben McAdams in Utah. 
excuse me, is one of those Democrats who won really handedly and impressively in 2018. Well, Republicans have nominated former NFL player Burgess Owens. He's a regular on Fox News. He's got a grassroots conservative following. He is black. Uh, and they're hoping, you know, this is an example of the new type of Republican that can come into office. Uh, another one I'd point out is in Iowa's first district. Um, Ashley Hinson is a former morning news anchor as a Republican trying to unseat um, Abigail Hassel owner. And so, excuse me, I got her name wrong, but my, my point is that they are trying, you know, they're trying to bolster uh, these minority candidates and women candidates. When you look at the overall spread of where Congress is, it's just women and minorities uh, really, really suffer in terms of representation in Congress and particularly within the Republican party. So. They have a lot of ground to make up, but so, so does the rest of the nation, I should say. Talking about key congressional races with Amber Phillips of the Washington Post, and uh, she's going to be with us a few moments more. If you have a question about any of these races or if you have some thoughts about them, we certainly want to hear from you. You can get in touch with us by emailing us now, forum at kqed.org. And Amber, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about California's 25th district. Katie Hill, uh, of course, was removed uh, under a scandal, or actually resigned under a scandal, and uh, Mike Garcia took over, a Republican. Now he's going to be in a rematch with Christy Smith. Uh, what do you see there? Uh, I see another close race, which, you know, again, to, f um, to talk about it in the framing that I see it, which I've been repeating throughout this call, is it would be a gut punch for, for Republicans to lose that seat after you just said winning it in a special election. Uh, when they won it, you know, I analyzed why this special election doesn't necessarily portend a ton of good things for Republicans in November, uh, you know, in part because of the scandal that you said cost Democrats the seat with Katie Hill. That being said, you know, Republican operatives pushed back at that and said, no way, you are super wrong. We think this is a race indicative of where we're going to be in November. And it's a tight race, like um, every race almost that you and I are talking about. And that's not where Republicans want to be. And if they lose it, if Mike Garcia loses it after just a couple months, you know, of holding it, it would be very difficult for Republicans to frame anything as having a good night. Um, you know, it would be a very, very bad night for them to lose that seat. And, and it's possible. But a lot of these seats do depend on what happens on the presidential ticket. I mean, not only with respect to the race of Mike Garcia, of course, is a big supporter of President Trump's, but also other battles that you mentioned, like the New Mexico battle, uh, where Congresswoman Torres uh, got the seat uh, in spite of the fact that there's strong support of uh, President Trump. Or you mentioned uh, Anthony uh, Brindisi. Uh, that actually was a race that was won despite 15 and a half points from the Republicans. Uh, so they think right. they can get back races like that. They think they can get back South Carolina, too. You mentioned Joe Cunningham. Yeah, so their strategy there, Republican strategy to get back those seats is to paint these Democrats, uh, the ones you just mentioned, as just a rubber stamp for Nancy Pelosi. If you go and look at all the ads that Republicans have run in these districts, it's side by side, you know. Excuse me, Amber, aren't they also trying to paint Nancy them Pelosi. as, uh, aren't they also trying to paint them as socialists and lefties and all that as well? 
They are. It's a, it's a little bit harder to do in these conservative districts. But yes, if we're to expand uh, the map more broadly, absolutely. That is, what's, that is what House Republicans are trying to do, to paint them as socialists um, and extreme. And so you know, Pelosi is part of that story because they can say, well, Nancy Pelosi, we think is extreme. You know, their argument is that she enables Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's of the House. And, and so draw that line, dear voter, from your candidate on up to socialism. Um, less so in these competitive, really conservative districts, because the Democrats have just been really careful <laughs> to not get tagged with that. You look at Torres Small, her at her advertising and her messaging at the end has been, I'll work with any president. Um, you hear that a lot from some of these Democrats in these conservative districts. Well, Amber, it's good to have you with us. Amber Phillips, again, reporter for The Washington Post. She's on top of all these House races and we will continue to look at the legislature in fact we're going to turn the corner here and talk about the senate races amber appreciate very much your being with us on forum this morning thank you thank you and when we return indeed we're going to look at the senate races marisa lagos will be joining us and so will jessica taylor from the cook political report that's up ahead stay tuned you're listening to kqed i'm michael krasny And welcome back to Forum. We're now going to turn our attention to the United States Senate. And joining us now, Marisa Lagos, political, uh, excuse me, politics correspondent with KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. And welcome, Marisa. Morning, Michael. Happy Election Day. Happy Election Day. And I hope people will indeed go out and vote if they haven't. Jessica Taylor is also with us, Senate and Governor's Editor of the Cook Political Report. Welcome, Jessica Taylor. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And let's say that uh, by introduction here, the Senate is now 53 to 47, 35 are up for election, 23 belong to the GOP and 12 to the Democrats. And uh, quite uh, plainly here, the Democrats need three if Biden wins and four uh, if, uh, he lo if he doesn't to flop the Senate. Uh, let me begin with you, Jessica Taylor, and let's talk about the Cook uh, political report because it says that seven of these races are a toss-up for the Republican incumbents and only one for the Democrats. And you come to that conclusion, why? Well, as you mentioned, there's just simply more Republican seats up and that they are, a lot of these Republicans are either in states that President Trump lost or very narrowly won. And when we see where we see his shifting poll margins across the board, that has put a lot more of these seats into play. And when I'm thinking about whether you need, as you mentioned, they need three seats, but actually their Democrats are likely to lose a seat in Alabama. That's Doug Jones's seat that had won that special election. Um, and so I'm counting that they need four. And so we have two seat, two Republican held seats, though, that we rate as like, uh, or excuse me, as lean Democrat. So we see those as probable to go toward Democrats, and that's Cory Gardner in Colorado and Martha McSally in Arizona. And so from that, then they just need two out of those seven. And we typically see when we look at our toss-up races in the past that they have overwhelmingly gone to one party or the other during an election year, and typically the party that's having the better election year. So, um, you know, again, just needing two, I think Maine is probably the next possible 
next most likely one, the most vulnerable of our toss-ups, Susan Collins there, 24-year incumbent facing a very difficult challenge um, in a state that Trump lost and is expected to lose by even larger this time. Um, we've seen her trailing her Democratic challenger, Sarah Gideon, but we may not know this one tonight because if no candidate gets 50 percent, it goes to a rank, their ranked choice voting system kicks in. And that's where I think it is difficult for Collins to sort of make up the ground there. And I think that leaves as the next likely tipping point states um, in North Carolina and Iowa. Yeah, let's talk about North Carolina and Iowa. In fact, uh, let me go to you on this, uh, Marisa, because North Carolina is uh, really a tipping point state. It not only could swing the White House, uh, although everybody's talking about Pennsylvania, it could certainly mean a Senate majority. Yeah, and I mean, so interesting that we, I feel like there, you know, some of these states are ones that we wouldn't have expected to be talking about just a few years ago. Um, but, you know, North Carolina, we've seen a lot of um, campaigning there by both the, you know, both Trump and Biden. Um, we did see the Democratic nominee get swept up in the sex scandal involving actually a California political consultant. Um, he's married Cal Cunningham. But, um, looking at Jessica's amazing analysis, which is one of the places I usually go for this type of information on the ground information. I mean, it just seems like Tom Tillis does not necessarily um, have, you know, the po kind of positive uh, look from the electorate that he would need even with that scandal. It's been, in fact, a pretty weak uh, campaign, at least that's how it's been characterized for Tom Tellis. But yeah. NPR did uh, a whole thing about 13 races that will determine what's going on here. And they mentioned right at the top Alabama, which seems unlikely to be held by Doug Jones. Uh, uh, Doug Jones, of course, uh, many may remember, was a Democrat who won in a race against uh, someone who had been sort of tired with all kinds of uh, uh, pedophilia accusations and young girls, uh, but uh, Roy Moore. But at this point, uh, we've got uh, the guy who beat uh, uh, Jeff Sessions, uh, Tuberville, uh, and, and he's, a, of course, a very beloved uh, Tommy Tull Tuberville uh, football coach. But let me go to some of these other races, and l let's go, uh, Jessica, to you on some of these. Um, the Dems look pretty good in Arizona with Mark Kelly and in Colorado uh, with John Hickelooper. Um, Iowa, however, looks like it's kind of a toss-up at this point, and Montana's very close, and that's uh, surprising to many people. You mentioned Maine is close as well. So we've got a lot out there that's unpredictable. And uh, I want to also get your take on the two races in Georgia, because they could go to Democrats, which would be unprecedented for decades, really. Yeah, absolutely. So I think Iowa is really a true toss up at this point. We've seen some polls showing Republican Senator there, Joni Ernst, up a few points, Teresa Greenfield, her Democratic challenger, up a few points. Um, I think that this race is going to be very close. And of course, this is a state that, I mean, when when in January, this race was unlikely Republican. This is not one that we intended to, ex we, we expected to become competitive at all. This is a state that President Trump won by nine points in 2016. But he is, again, neck and neck with Biden. We rate it on in our electoral ratings as a toss up as well. And so the question is, could perhaps Trump have a good night there? And be able to sort of pull Ernst across the finish line. She's been running behind him at some points. You know, she was one of the stars of the 2014 class because I think another thing, another reason why Republicans have so many senators up is that this is the class of 2014, six years ago, that they flipped the Senate to Republican control. And that was one of the best Republican years in recent history. And now they face perhaps one of the worst years in recent history. So it just shows you how the political winds can change from cycle to cycle. Um, 
and so I think, and Ernst, you know, she, her favorable ratings have really fallen there in this state. They feel like she's gone to Washington. In fact, in their final debate, she was tripped up over a question about not knowing the price of soybeans, which to uh, (laughs) Iowa's agricultural community is very important. And Democrats sort of honed in on that is, okay, she's lost touch with the state. Um, And then you mentioned Montana. This is another race we did not expect to be competitive. It was in solid Republican and would have stayed there, except for Democrats were able to convince the one candidate that could make this race competitive, the term-limited governor there, Steve Bullock, to jump into the race against Republican Senator Steve Daines. And, you know, Montana, while it votes very reliably Republican at the presidential level, it does elect Democratic governors and senators. Um, John Tester won just two years ago there um, and uh, crossed 50 percent for the first time, in fact. And Bullock has someone who has very high favorable ratings in the state, again, elected twice as governor, um, overperforming Trump by about five points in 2016. Um, And uh, uh, just... I think it's a question of, uh, you know, uh, Republicans are really trying to make this a, um, you know, a a referendum on the Democratic Party. You know that, okay, you may know this Steve Bullock, but he's going to go to Washington. He's going to vote with Chuck Schumer, who recruited him into the race. He's going to vote for all of these Democratic proposals. But, you know, Bullock is like, you know me, you know that I'm a, you know, a Montana Democrat, moderate. Um, And so this is a really interesting race to watch. This is actually one that when I talk with Republicans and Democrats that I think could be one of the closest of the night and that we may not know tonight, in fact. And that stands for Iowa as well. I think both of these races could be very, very close. Um, The other two races that I don't think we will know tonight is um, Georgia. Um, There are two races there, regular election with David Perdue um, versus Democrat John Ossoff. And then there is a special election um, with uh, the appointed Senator Kelly Leffler, who was appointed to the Senate at the beginning of the year to fill Johnny Isaacson's seat, who stepped down due to health concerns. And um, Kelly Leffler, she immediately got a challenge from the right from Congressman Doug Collins, who, you know, has accused her of not being conservative enough. And so she's had to move far to the right, even though she was appointed specifically to appeal to these, you know, Republican women in the suburbs of Atlanta that Republicans were drastically losing. And so they're fighting for one of the spots in the, the, in the special election is a all all the candidates run on the same ballot, um, regardless of party. So it's a jungle primary, essentially. And if no candidate gets 50 percent in that race, it's going to a runoff, which we are virtually certain that's going to happen. And Democrats have Re- Reverend Raphael Warnock running. He is the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is a very historic African-American church that. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. preached was Martin Luther King Jr.'s church. He's expected to come in first, and then that leaves Leffler and Collins sort of fighting for the final spot. But then again, in the other race, though, too, under Georgia law, if no candidate uh, um, exceeds 50% in the regular election, though, too, that also goes to a runoff. And with there's a libertarian on the ballot as well. So I think that's probably the most likely scenario. And that means that not one but two races would be kicked to January 5th, 2021. So the question is, are these two determinative of a Senate majority or do they just determine how perhaps big Democrat Senate majority is? So I think regardless, we probably aren't going to know the outcome of either of those races until two months, really. Do you think by that time, uh, Republican David Perdue will learn Kamala's name and how to pronounce it? Uh, actually, I, I'm sorry. I, we need some levity here because today is election day. Yeah. 
But I was struck by your remark about Joni Ernst and the soybeans, uh, and also something you said to Chuck Todd when you were talking about the Alaska race, and you said there are literally votes that are brought in by dog sled in Alaska, which is something that I think uh, listeners ought to maybe take under advisement here. Let me... Um, well, I've been told that this year they aren't. They, they, I think they may have been snowmobiles in previous elections. That may have been what I was thinking about. But I think it will take a while for Alaska to count votes as well. I mean, that 2014 race was very close between Dan Sullivan, the incumbent, and Mark Begich. And then um, when Begich won, he ousted longtime Senator Ted Stevens. And that was a race that went into recount after recount. So that's what I was thinking of at that point. <laughs> well, the point here is that the demographics are changing uh, in places like Georgia. And so there are things much more up for grabs. And certainly North Carolina, the demographics are changing. Uh, let me, by the way, invite listeners to join us. If you have questions or comments about the Senate races, we'd like to hear from you. And if you have thoughts uh, in general about the possible takeover of the Senate by the Democrats or uh, the likelihood of that occurring or not occurring, let us know where you stand and let us know what your thoughts are. You can join us now toll-free. 866-733-6786 is the number for your calls. That's again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. I want to ask you, Marisa, about Arizona, because I know there's been a lot of work uh, coming out of California to turn that state blue and change everything. So Mark Kelly will win. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I just did a story this week, Michael, um, about how many Democrats have been phone banking, text banking, headed um, out there in person even to do what they say is COVID safe canvassing. Um, but this is really an interesting race. You know, we saw um, Kristen Cinema flip one of the seats there, a beat Martha McSally, who was then appointed to John McCain's seat by the Republican governor uh, when John McCain passed away. And so this is McSally versus Mark Kelly, who is, of course, Gabby Gifford's husband. Um, she was the congresswoman who was so uh, terribly attacked along with some of her staff and others at a campaign event several years ago. And they become these big gun control activists. Um, but he's got this military background. And I think a lot of between sort of the the Giffords name in, in Texas, or I'm sorry, in Arizona, um, and the fact that the demographics there are just changing so dramatically, um, really seeing Maricopa County where Phoenix is becoming increasingly blue, uh, younger, more diverse electorate there. Um, it, Mark Kelly is actually in most polls leading far above what Biden is. And you have people talking about if Biden does carry it, which is a big if, you know, whether there could almost be reverse coattails there. Um, but it is certainly, um, uh, a race that Democrats feel pretty good about, I think. And, and, I, and you know, it is it, it does tie back to the presidential race because of this question. You know, we are obviously watching Pennsylvania and Florida, but there is a path for Joe Biden through the Sun Belt. Um, and some of the analysts um, in Arizona think that, you know, essentially Trump has almost uh, sort of pushed the bluing of the state forward faster than it would have happened, maybe by a couple cycles, because there is a lot of energy, especially like younger Latino voters, um, especially Latinas, uh, to, to defeat him. But yeah, like if you look at the polling averages on 538, I mean, you have Kelly up by seven, nine, you know, points in some of these uh, recent polls. Um, Biden only up by a couple points in most of them. So it's definitely um, one I think that Democrats are going to be watching. And Arizona does start, um, I think, opening their ballots early and counting them right away. So we do expect to see some pretty quick results from there as opposed to some other states. And here's a listener comment. Uh, listener writes, regardless of whether Democrats take the Senate or not, they need to be on the defensive and offensive when it comes to anti-democratic Republican tactics that will continue after the election. Let's hear from Ben. Ben, join us. You're on the air. 
Yeah, hi, good morning. I have a question about California Senate. Uh, who do we think is going to replace uh, Vice President Kamala Harris? <laughs> Right. That's fait accompli. For, <laughs> right. For Might be a, a few steps ahead. But, um, you know, there's a lot of names that have been floating out there. I heard Barbara Lee, a congresswoman from Oakland, come up recently. Uh, we know Alex Padilla, our secretary of state, has long had an eye on a Senate seat. Um, Javier Becerra, the attorney general, who was appointed by uh, Jerry Brown to that seat, has been mentioned. Um, Adam Schiff, obviously, in L.A., has gotten a lot of attention in recent years. Personally, I think it would be difficult for Newsom to replace, um, you know, we have two female senators in a body that is still far over overrepresented by men and very few people of color um, there. So I personally think that will be weighing on Newsom to think about, you know, the demographics of who just, ha you know, having Kamala Harris in such a historic position, both as a senator and um, potential vice president. So if he gets that pick, I think he's going to be under a lot of pressure. Um, but we should mention that, you know, there's some people that think Dianne Feinstein would not serve out her full term and that there could be a scenario where he would get two opportunities to pick a U.S. senator, which would be uh, pretty remarkable. And again, Marisa Lagos is politics correspondent for KQED. And if you'd like to join us, you can do that now at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. We'll go to another caller, but before I do, I want to go back to you, Jessica Taylor, and just get a sense of there would be a kind of dream uh, Democrat uh, victory in Kentucky and for that matter, uh, certainly in South Carolina, too. I'm talking about the races between... Uh, Amy McGrath in Kentucky and Mitch McConnell uh, and the possibility of her unseating him or Jamie Harrison unseating Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. Uh, most of the analysis seems to suggest that those are both tough reaches, despite all the money that has gone, particularly into South Carolina behind Jamie Harrison. What's your take? Well, we rate South Carolina as a toss-up. I don't think South Carolina is as much of a reach as Kentucky is. I mean, Trump won South Carolina by just 14 points versus 30 points in Kentucky. And so just when you look at that and also that South Carolina has more African-American voters than, than by far than Kentucky. So it is a more diverse state. And that's where Jamie Harrison, who is black, has been looking to sort of turn out those voters. And you know, so far, I know in early voting, they were certainly hitting and surpassing those marks. And you have Lindsey Graham, who has really changed probably more than any senator over the past four years. You know, when he challenged President Trump in the 2016 primary, he called him a race baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. And um, now he's his golf buddy and a loyal ally. And, you know, he I think that this race was very close at the beginning of the, uh, you know, October. I do think that perhaps it's moved slightly in Lindsey Graham's direction because he has been, again, emphasizing um, the Supreme Court nomination of uh, and confirmation of now Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And while I'm not sure that that had a major impact in many other races, I think here it did because Graham is chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that could help some Republicans sort of come home to him. But there, you know, there's long been sort of a conservative skepticism of him in the state because he is someone that has worked all across the aisle and worked on immigration reform. Well, it hurt. Uh, it, probably, it probably hurt Senator Feinstein in somewhat that she hugged him. It may have hurt him in South yes. Carolina. But let me get yeah. a caller on here because Mark mm -hmm. wants to talk about that race. Mark, join us. Hi. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Thank you for talking about South Carolina. It's, it's a race that's really garnered a lot of interest. I've donated to that race, um, Jamie Harrison, to be full disclosure. But I've, we, we've all been blown away by the amount of money. Uh, I mean, this is a record-setting race, I think, in the history of history. So I was wondering if you guys could comment, uh, your, your speakers, on that fact and whether or not that's something that is 
can be quantified in any way uh, when we look at the race. Mark, thanks for the question. We're coming up on a break here, but let me go to you, Jessica Taylor. You want to comment on this huge amounts of money that have gone into these races? Yeah, I mean, Jamie Harrison raised $57 million in the third quarter, which just obliterated the previous record by Beta O'Rourke. And, But, I mean, you have Republicans, though, that have come in, uh, the outside super PAC with Mitch McConnell, Senate Leadership Fund, that they've actually outspent Democrats in the final days of the race. So it shows that, you know, even with that amount of money, Republicans are still trying to sort of save it. Well, we are coming up on a break, but when we return, we'll take more of your calls and we'll also continue this analysis of what's likely to happen with the Senate. Stay tuned. You're listening to KQED Public Radio. And if you haven't gone out and voted when this program's over, when Mina's uh, done with the second hour forum, cast your vote. I'm Michael Krasny. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the U.S. Senate races with Marisa Lagos and Jessica Taylor. And uh, let me bring another caller in here. Atul joins us. Atul, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, Michael. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I had a question about the order of counting in the state level counting. You see all this controversy about uh, uh, our president saying that the, the ballots must be counted on the same day. Is there any prevention in the state rules which decides how the order of counting should take place? Because if the counting is done of the mail-in ballots and absentee ballots first, and the in-person ballots are counted later, I'm well, sure all this uh, all this issue will go away. Yeah, let me thank you for that question, Atul. Let me go to you, Jessica Taylor. Can you sort this out? Yeah, so I mean, it really it just does differ state by state, and that's some of the arguments that you're having. But I will say that um, you know, as, as we mentioned before, some states like North Carolina, Arizona, Florida are allowed to sort of count those votes early. And that's why we do expect tonight to see some pretty early returns. And I think, um, you know, while Florida doesn't have a Senate race, that's going to be crucial to the presidential race that could give us sort of an early indication of whether, you know, Trump is still in this or whether it could be a Biden blowout. Um, Biden doesn't have to win Florida, but I mean, he would certainly like to, of course. Um, and I, I think that... <laughs> The, the differentiation that Trump is not making, unfortunately, that I think is sowing a lot of disinformation um, and confusion um, is that, you know, we're not talking about people casting their votes tomorrow or days later. The question is whether ballots that are postmarked by today, but that could be received. But he's taken it further and even talked about, you know, that they shouldn't be able to count ballots after tonight, which it's just ludicrous, plainly, because uh, we never know the full results on election night. You know, we we have um, networks have decision desks and the AP makes calls based on projections. But these are not final results. I mean, we've certainly seen states flip from the initial call. I mean, you don't have to think back that far to just Florida in 2000, obviously. And anyone that covers down ballot races like, you know, we do. A lot of these races, House and Senate governors can go on for, you know, days or weeks. So there's no provision at all that we have to know who wins these races on election night, because in many races, every cycle, we don't know for quite a while. And there's nothing wrong. In fact, you are supposed to count every ballot until they are counted, ones that were legally cast. And once again, we're talking about the battle for Congress. What races are you watching and why and what questions do you have? You can give us a call now at our toll free number, 866 866- 
733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And a question, Marisa Lagos, from a listener named Lila, who says we spent yesterday talking about the Electoral College, but she wants to know if the Democrats win both the presidency and the Senate, what, if anything, can they do about changing the rules governing the Electoral College? Well, that would need to be essentially a constitutional amendment ratified by enough states. Um, I mean, it's actually not as far as you'd think. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I think a it's fair up number. to 19. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that there's going to be a long list of good government measures that Democrats are going to want to uh, tackle if they do indeed get um, both Congress and the White House. Um, I think voting rights to the con- <laughs> to the commons we just had are going to be a conversation because you know, I think what we've seen over the last four years is that both the strength and weakness of our democracy is how decentralized our voting systems are and that there are not sort of, um, you know, that can be good when you think about things like hacking and the fact that it's not as if there's one voting system that a foreign actor could could tap into to try to really mess things up here. But on the other hand, you do have such a wide range of um, access, quite frankly. And, you know, we've seen Republicans um, at both the state um, and obviously Trump, up to Trump, uh, really try to suppress votes in some areas and fight to not have votes counted. I mean, you know, here in California, I think um, what's going to be interesting to watch is how different the initial returns will be than in years past. They they tended to skew conservative in the past. And I think this year we're going to see that kind of flip because Democrats have been so eager. Um, But yeah, on things like the Electoral College, on um, whether to expand the Supreme Court, on whether to set sort of standards across the nation around voting rights, I think those are going to and the filibuster and the filibuster i mean those are all going to be at the top you know one among the things on a very long list and i think it's going to really depend to some extent um on you know if they do win the senate how big that majority is and um really you know how how joe biden would want to govern if he wins the white house because i do think that you have seen him be a little bit more cautious about some of these conversations and i don't think it's entirely clear to any of us watching whether that is a political calculation or just um you know more his politics. He has historically been a little bit of a more moderate Democrat. And let me bring another caller on here. We go to Yee next from San Jose. Yee, join us. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, yes, I would just like to say, you know, how important this election has been for the Asian American community. I mean, um, you know, we've never had a vice presidential candidate of Asian heritage before. And uh, it's very likely after the census that uh, Asian Americans will be the largest uh, ethnic group in San Jose. So it's really it's really a milestone year for our community. And uh, it's uh, it's just been amazing to watch. Well, thank you for those thoughts. Yee. Good to hear from you. And uh, Marina, one of our listeners writes, is it possible for Trump to win a second term, but the Democrats win the majority in the Senate, thus control Congress? Let's speculate for a moment on that. Uh, certainly a lot of people don't want to necessarily think about this, but what would be the likelihood of uh, what, what are your thoughts right off the top of your head here, Jessica Taylor, about if, if Trump were to win and the Senate were to become under Democratic majority? I mean, listen, it's 2020, so I rule nothing out, but I have a very hard time um, seeing how that would happen because you have states that they would have to, Democrats have to win, essentially, like Arizona, um, uh, North Carolina, that those are states that I just don't see the Republican uh or rather, the, the, I don't see Trump um, winning, but, Demo- but uh, Democrats losing at the Senate level. Um, so I just have a hard time of, uh, see, uh, of seeing that, um, or rather Trump winning and also Democrats winning, um, because a lot of these races track so closely um, 
with this. In fact, in 2016, every single Senate race voted the same way um, that the presidential results did in their states. So I think a lot of this will track pretty closely. And, you know, Trump has to hang on to states like North Carolina and Arizona um, in order to to win a second term. So I think that's just, you know, you never say never because there are, you know, you can make a map out of almost any scenario, but it's very hard for me to imagine. Well, we were talking earlier about changing demographics, and it prompts me to ask you, uh, Jessica, about states that have been so traditionally red, uh, and I'm thinking particularly of Texas and Kansas, for that matter, uh, which Democrats feel maybe they've got an outside remote chance of actually turning around? Yeah, I mean, so we rate both Kansas and uh, Texas as lean Republican, which just the fact that they are in a more competitive category this year tells you sort of how bad the map really is for Republicans tonight. Um, listen, Kansas, uh, they elected a Democratic governor two years ago, but votes for Demo- votes for governor are very different. Um, we've just seen an explosion there in the suburbs, particularly in Kansas City, Johnson County. And that's where, you know, Republicans are hoping to sort of make up the difference in the more rural areas. The Republican there, Kansas is an open seat with Pat Roberts retiring. And the Republican there, Roger Marshall, represents the western part of the state but isn't super well known in other areas. And he's run sort of a lackluster campaign, not raising a lot of money. So again, you have national groups that are have had to come in to bail him out while the Democratic nominee, um, Barbara Bollier, a state legislator who was a Republican, switched to the Democratic Party after Trump was elected. So she can sort of speak to a lot of those, you know, disaffected Republicans. And she's portrayed herself as more of a moderate. She's raised far more money and has been able to get her message out. I think at the end, the Republican lean of the state um, wins out. Um, But in Texas as well, I mean, you know, we're talking about this now as a presidential battleground and it's a battle really at every level um, with several House seats. And then the state legislature is also um, very well could flip, which could have implications for redistricting coming up next year, you know, uh, before next cycle. Um, So you have John Corn in there. longtime Republican, a member of a member of Senate leadership. And then you have MJ Hagar, who she's a combat veteran, um, receives the Purple Heart for injuries that she sustained in Afghanistan uh, as a helicopter pilot. Um, and she got off to a little bit of a slow start. Her The primary and runoff was delayed. She hasn't raised as much money as other Democrats have, like Jamie Harrison. And Texas is a state where you do need a lot of money. But now she is in the final stretch. She's outpacing um, Cornyn. And, you know, there's a little bit of worry there. I still think, you know, what we have seen in polls, though, is that Cornyn can outrun Biden, though, um, and uh, or, or can outrun Trump, rather. Um, I think there are some Biden Cornyn voters, um, not a lot, but perhaps enough to sort of keep him in there, because I can certainly see a scenario where Biden st- Biden does upset and win the state, but the Cornyn is still reelected. Well, there's been no Democratic senator in Texas for over 30 years. And I think when we look at Kansas, it's back in 1932 when yeah. there was a Democratic senator. <laughs> but, you know, I'm also thinking about Michigan because we have a first term senator there, Gary Peters, who's a Democrat. He's in a pretty close race with his challenger, uh, John James. And James has suddenly had a lot of money come his way. I think Mitch McConnell has poured in about $4 million. Yeah, this is a race that has gotten a lot of attention. Um, really, it's Democrats had to, or Republicans rather, had to find another race to make competitive because really the only one that they were challenging, um, Dem- that they were forcing Democrats to spend in was in, was in Alabama. Um, and so this is a state, again, you know, Trump won it. And Peters was the only Democrat actually elected in um, 2014, uh, new, new Democrat election in 2014. He hasn't been as well known around the state. 
but I think that this is another place where um, if President Trump were doing better in Michigan, you know, a state he very narrowly carried by less than a point um, four years ago, um, James might be able to pull off the upset. He's been a very impressive candidate. He's an African-American veteran um, and has raised a lot of money. And you do see super PACs pouring money in there. But I think it's more about forcing forcing Democrats to also have to spend here. And that's money that they can't spend elsewhere. So I think it could be close. But I still give Peters the edge because of just the environment that we see in Michigan. Jessica, I know we have to let you go, but I'm grateful for the time you spent with us. Appreciate your analysis. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you so much. That's Jessica Taylor, Senate Governor's Editor of the Cook uh, Political Report. Marisa Lagos will stay with us, and we'll get another caller on. Tony from San Francisco, good morning. Hi, good morning. I'm, I'm just wondering, would it be possible to strengthen the law against voter suppression? And if we strengthen the civil code and the criminal code in California, can that set a useful example for other states? Thank you. Uh, an important question. Marisa, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, California... I, I find this debate really interesting because if you look at the state here, we have had um, a vast expansion of voting rights over recent years, mostly led by Democrats, but often supported by Republicans in the legislature. Um, historically, in this state, the people that we saw most likely to vote by mail were not Democrats. They were conservative Republicans, usually in more rural areas. Um, and so often, you know, those what, what insiders call the 801, so those first ballot returns that get counted, those early absentees would have been a more conservative um kind of return. So, I mean, I think, yes, obviously, uh, expanding and franchising voters anywhere is a service to democracy. Um, but it does seem like a lot of this conversation has kind of risen to the national level and for good reason. Um, you know, Jessica brought up the idea of redistricting in Texas. I think that's something that once the dust settles on this election, we'll be looking at closely. Um, you know, even if Republicans hold on to Senate seats, say in Georgia or Texas, what happens to some of those down ballot legislative races? Who controls the state legislatures? That's going to matter a lot in those types of places where we have seen efforts at really, um, quite frankly, disenfranchising folks. Um, but it does seem like some sort of national standards might be necessary. So we're not seeing these kind of piecemeal ballot fights play out like the ones we have out of Wisconsin and Pennsylvania this week. Um, and, you know, I think it is worth noting this is an extraordinary year. We have not lived through a global pandemic in a century. Um, but it, it is, I think, very disheartening to see just how many um, arguments we're having, not over policy, but whether people should be allowed to exercise their democratic right. Um, to me, it just seems like that should not be a partisan issue. And I would hope that um, we could see something happen at the federal level. Yeah, I share that hope. And here's Pam who writes, I'm watching Kentucky. Mitch McConnell has to go. He may be more problematic than Trump, if that's possible. And by the way, Mitch McConnell is running against, as we said earlier, Democrat Amy McGrath, who's trailing McConnell now by about 10 points in recent polls. Uh, a lot of people not necessarily putting all their faith in the polls, though. But uh, <laughs> we're talking about the battle yeah. for Congress. And let me bring another uh, another caller on. We go to Wynn next. Wynn in Menlo Park. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I seem to recall in 2018 that Nancy Pelosi said in the Democratic caucus vote that she would take that office and then not run again. I think I also heard that recently she said she is going to run again. Is she pulling a... Um, uh, uh, Lindsey Graham on us? <laughs> uh, 
Um, you know, she had agreed to limit her tenure as speaker. Um, I don't think it was for two years. I think uh, I'm, I'm trying to pull up the exact uh, language she used at the time. Um, she, she limited it to a four-year maximum. So that would be 2022. So no, her running again, if Democrats keep the House as expected, is not um, reneging on that promise. Although I would note, you know, if you're super interested in this. It's a little insider baseball, but it is interesting to see how the House has changed some of the rules, um, allowed freshmen to become committee chairs or at least more ranking members on committees. Um, Pelosi has, I think, responded to some of the pressure we've seen from some of the younger or newer members, and it's definitely uh, planning to hand off leadership over the coming years. I think the thing to watch in this next term will be kind of who she's grooming um, to take on some of those leadership spots because, you know, there's a lot of people and not just in the Senate, but in the House that are aging and and a lot of younger folks who are um, excited to take on those leadership roles. You know, Marisa, we only have a few minutes left, and I wanted and intended to talk with you about some local House races here. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, I wanted to talk to you about District 21, T.J. Cox against uh, David Villato, for example, in the central part of the state, and also yeah. the Dana Rohrbacher uh, Putin's favorite congressman seat, um, <laughs> and uh, as he came to me, and the Duncan Hunter seat. We, we're kind of running short of time here, but which would you uh, say those three? Would you particularly single out people to watch for, and what to watch for? Well, uh, the Valadeo Cox race is going to be tight. I think it could be days, if not weeks, till we know an answer on that one. Um, you mentioned Dana Rohrbacher's old seat in Orange County. Definitely interesting. This is Harley Ruda, the now incumbent, who's being challenged by Michelle Steele, a Korean-American uh, supervisor, her husband, and she have very close ties to the National Republican Party. Um, and then, yeah, the, the other one um, I would just mention, Michael, is that uh, Katie Hill seat up in um, northern Los Angeles, southern Ventura counties. Uh, this is yeah, Mike we Garcia. talked about that earlier. Yeah, uh, Mike Garcia did win, um, and I think it's going to be a very tight race again, one we may not know anything about for several days. But Daryl Issa is back in the mix here, too, former Republican congressman running against uh, Democrat Amar Kampanajar, yeah. uh, who Duncan Hunter, um, uh, well, it beat, uh, even when he was charged and admitted guilt. Yeah, that is a pretty safe Republican seat. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things we've seen Democrats do, not just in a place like that, but across the nation, is try to lay the groundwork. I mean, look at Texas. Would we be having this conversation if Beto O'Rourke hadn't done what he did a few years ago in that Senate run? So I think someone like Kampa Najjar, is, it's a long shot for him to actually win that seat. Issa is well ahead in polls. Um, but, you know, you have him out there registering voters, talking to Democrats, and um, potentially Potentially that could change things, you know, in another two or four years. Well, any final thoughts about uh, the presidential election from you? Seconds <sighs> left. Just to urge people to be patient and um, to try to look at the data, not just the rhetoric. And I think, um, you know, we, we could know tonight, but it's likely we will not. And I hope everybody kind of takes a deep breath and uh, remembers that we're all part of one democratic nation and that, and that this should not be, uh, the, 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 you know, whatever happens, we're all going to be here tomorrow. <laughs> Well, I'm, I keep thinking for some reason of Emily Dickinson who said the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. She was talking about hope and whatever your <laughs> hopes are, I hope they will be brought to some kind of fruition. I also hope you will vote if you haven't. And finally, uh, the thing to say here is that um, this is our republic we're talking about. This is our democracy. Let's hope we can preserve it in any of the best possible ways. Thank you, Marisa Lagos. Good <laughs> Thanks, to have you with us. I want to thank also Jessica Taylor, who was with us earlier. And thank you, our listeners. We wouldn't be here without you. And remember, you can always let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum or would like to hear by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. 
finally, once again, take care of yourselves and those you care about, and please be safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.